Hello, and welcome to episode number two of the Counterforce podcast. We were just listening to Lights in the Dark, the latest single by the poptastic Carla J. Easton. Carla fronts the band Teen Canteen, whose 2016 Say It All with a Kiss album is one of my favorite records of the new millennium. I kicked off my review for it for Under the Radar magazine with, Wow, these ladies sure know their way around a pop song. If you love pop music, I urge you to listen to this record immediately. Full of a golden youthfulness, harnessing the whole teenage spectrum, from lost in love daydreaming to the enormous energy of its expression, with huge hooks and harmonies ushering along everything in between, streamlining all within into pop gems. It's great, and I'll be playing some later on in the show. Carla's first band was Futuristic Retro Champions, who were again very pop. The same year as Say It All With A Kiss came out, she also released a solo record, Homemade Lemonade, under the name Et. I really like her explanation of that moniker, so listen out for that. She co-wrote Best Friend with Stuart Murdoch and sang it on the latest Bell and Sebastian EP, and she's got three singles of her own coming out this year, followed by an album that she recorded in Montreal with Howard Billerman, the man who recorded and played drums on the first Arcade Fire record, and who has also worked with Leonard Cohen, British Sea Power, Godspeed You Black Emperor, and a whole host of others. How Carla met him at the Banff Arts Center in Canada is a really good story, and there's plenty of other good stuff coming up. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's full of pop enthusiasm. So without further ado... Should we dive right in? Yeah, okay. Cool. So when did you first fall in love with pop music? I don't know. I just have always been a big fan of music. Um, My brother's 10 years older than me, and he always encouraged me to listen to all kinds of music and we would listen to it together and it was kind of how we kind of bonded I guess because of the age gap yeah just always kind of been quite open to pop music and I think the first 12 inch record I got ever put your hand on your heart by Kylie Minogue when I was I think three or four what what other records do you remember him playing you um loads like my first seven inch record was the Lemonheads cover of Being Around which I think, uh, not being around, Mrs. Robinson being around was the B-side on it. So I think then I was like eight or nine and then uh, he was obsessed with the Stone Roses, so that was one of my favourite bands when I I was like, again, really young. uh, I would have been 18 at the time he was listening to them. So I was always kind of exposed to music. Quite, uh, quite early on, I guess a lot of people it's maybe through their parents' record collection, but for me it was like I couldn't wait to get in from school and read my brother's CD and record collection um, before he got in from work. Nice. Yeah, that first Stone Roses album I think is just a perfect pop record. Uh, me too, and that's the thing to me, it's like a, it's totally pop, like 100%. Um, but yeah, I remember when um, their single Love Spreads came out, my brother made me pretend to my mum that I was like sick the night before and he said that he was too he was sick too, so it must have been someone we'd eaten and he took the day off work and so he was like, Carla can take the day off school, I'll look after her. Then my mum went off to work and he told me to stay in my room and not open the door to anyone and then he went he got the train to Glasgow and got the C D and the cassette and the twelve inch of love spreads and brought them home and we just listened to them all day. And that was just something that we did. Oh, that's awesome. What was your opinion of Love Spreads at the time? I mean, that was a departure from the sound. 
I know, I, I think I was too young to have like a proper critical opinion of it compared to everyone else. Um, that was, you know, sometimes I wish I wasn't listening to what my brother had listened to before I was like a teenager because it made it kind of hard to fit in with people at school when you're walking about at like the age of eight telling people you've joined up to the Blur newsletter that your brother made you pretend you were 18 on the form to sign up to because otherwise they wouldn't include you but that was sadly the kind of childhood that I had. Oh, that's great. What was the first thing you discovered on your own? The band that kind of made me want to be in a band and make music was the Polyphonic Spree. I saw them two thousand or 2001. They played Teen in the Park and me and uh, Debbie from Teen Canteen, we've been like best friends for, for a long time now. So when I was 16 and she was 15, we convinced her parents and my mum to let us go to Teen in the Park for the whole weekend without any accompaniment. And I'd read about the polyphonic spree in the NME, and that was uh, back in the day when the only way you could check out a band was to see them live or buy the record, you know, and you really trusted specific journalists and kind of followed what they said to kind of point you in the right direction. So I was, like, really excited about this new band, and we went to see them, and to me, that was just a total game changer, you know? It was just like, wow, I want to be there. I want to be up on stage. It just looked like a lot of fun. And prior to that, I think most of the bands that I'd been to see with my brother, it's always been like, you know, kind of four males typically. And Polyphonic Street was like lots of, lots of boys and girls and fun and lots of instruments. And so that was like my first kind of big band. And I would say that it was like totally uninfluenced by my brother uh, when I bought their album. In fact, it was me that then told him, you need to check out this band. And we actually, I took him to see them in 2015. They were doing their 15th anniversary tour and they came to Glasgow. And uh, as soon as the first song started, I started crying. And then my brother started crying. He was like, they're just the greatest band ever. And yeah, Scoot got to meet Tim after the show because he was signing stuff and I was like I want to go and meet Tim but I turned into a total fangirl and couldn't say anything and I was just like thank you but yeah that was my first sort of big obsession that made me want to make music as well. What was your first gig? My brother took me to see a band called Embrace at the Barrowlands when I was 13. I'm quite short anyway I still get ID'd a lot even though I'm 32 but at the time I looked very young so he was like you need to put a bit of makeup on and stuff and, and try and get in and that was insane because I'd never been in uh, a venue like that before and it was just like the anticipation of walking upstairs and then going into this kind of low ceiling room and it was loud and stank of beer and there's all these people pushing about and I just felt so small and but yeah, it was great. It was really good. I really liked Embrace uh, when I was younger. I thought they were a great band. How did you start playing music yourself? I started keyboard lessons when I was maybe eight. But I don't ever remember asking for them. I think it was just maybe my parents were trying to find some sort of activity for me to do because I didn't wasn't really into sport. I mean, I liked drawing and kind of reading and stuff like that. So I started with the keyboard and then that progressed to piano. And 
did the sort of exams and stuff you do for it. And then when I got to secondary school, I took up the saxophone and like played in the school band and things like that. But never really thought about like making my own music. And then I guess when I hit about 15, 16 and you're that kind of awkward teenager, I kind of stopped playing the piano and the saxophone and purely to try and fit in a wee bit more because I was always carrying a big art folder to school and then a saxophone in one hand and doing all my lessons and stuff so then I just kind of took it back up before leaving high school but I was never very good at uh, sight reading music or anything so I kind of abandoned it and went to art school and then it was when I was at art school I kind of picked up a keyboard a bit again just to to have a bit of fun with some friends. We just kind of went from there, really. And was that futuristic retro champions? Yeah, back in the days of MySpace. <laughs> yeah, tell me about your musical history with bands. They all have really cool names. Thank you. <laughs> um, futuristic Retro Champions was like a... Well, we were making a song to go with a film, a bit like a short video where we were making at art school, and then... Um, I had this tutor at art school called Paul Carter, who was such a big inspiration. Like, I met him at 18, like, kind of walked into art school fresh-faced, first time living in a city, and I was wearing the uh, Beatles uh, Revolver album artwork on a t-shirt, and he immediately came over and was like, do you know that someone from Manfred Mann illustrated that? And I was like, no, I did not. And then we just started talking about music and yeah, he was really good because he'd make like mix CDs for students and like come out to clubs with us and pubs and stuff. So when I'd made the song for the video, I kind of took him out of class and I had burned it into a CD and had a wee CD Walkman and I was like, listen to this and he just started smiling and he was smoking a cigarette and he was like, yeah, just, just form a band, just make music. And I was like, okay then. But in Future Search of Champions, I wrote all the songs, but I didn't sing them because I didn't really think I could sing. And I kind of, a few comments had been made along the time, like you're not, not a good enough singer or it's too weird or stuff like that. So yeah, I didn't really sing in that band. Then that kind of just came to a natural progression because I think just not having a live drummer and there's so many of us and I'd started changing what I was writing to be what would become Teen Canteen. And then it was around that time Douglas from BMX Bandit saw me perform and said, you should think about singing your own songs now, which was a, a great encouragement. And yeah, just been going ever since then, really, and kind of trying to develop and now doing my own stuff, but using my own name now rather than the alias of Et. Yeah, Et is a great name too. You want to explain where that comes from? Yeah, well... Back to the Polyphonics 3 thing, originally I was going to put that project out under the name Soldier Girl after their, uh, their song, but then um, there's this old Edinburgh band who they did five gigs in 1979, it was like an all-girl band called The X, so it's kind of in homage to them, and also I like the fact that et as a suffix kind of diminishes a word and makes it feminine in language, so... I like the idea that there's this big noisy pop record that I'd recorded in my friend Joe's garage studio. So it was like this small environment, but trying to make this big sound. And yeah, just the kind of oxymoron of that with the 
this diminutive suffix. To me, it was funny. I don't know if anyone else found it funny, though. So you had been writing the complete songs, music and lyrics, all along? Yeah. What, what lyricists do you like? My fav- One of my favourite records is, well, I have two favourites, and it's uh, All Things Must Pass by George Harrison and Tapestry by Carole King. I love Laura Nero as well. But I guess I do, because I maybe listen to a lot of pop as, as well, that maybe that feeds into it. Um, you know, I know a lot of people kind of turn away from pop because they say the, the artist didn't write it, but to, to me that's nothing new. That's always been how pop's been made, you know, like yeah. some of the greatest records weren't sang by the people that wrote them. So, uh, I mean, I love Ellie Greenwich as well and um, Burt Bacharach and, uh, yeah, I guess that kind of classic building style songwriting but then also yeah was exposed via my brother to like Teenage Fan Club and BMX Bandits and all of that kind of thing too. I saw you posted today um, Sometimes Always by the Mary Chain who have always been one of yeah. my favourite bands. Yeah no that's I love that song and I saw them play at Electric Fields last year and they had a girl coming on to sing with them and and um, my friend Brett was over from Canada and every time the girl came on stage, I was like, right, this is it, they're going to do it, they're going to do Sometimes Always and it's the best pop song ever. But they never did that song and I was like, just waiting for it. Um, they were amazing live, so loud, like you could feel the ground shaking and they just fantastic. The new stuff sounded great as well. Cool. So yeah, let's talk about the new record. It has a, an interesting story about how it came to be. You want to tell us that? Accidental records again. <laughs> I don't really know how to start. I mean, the Homemade Lemonade album was an accident too. That was never re- really meant to be an album, so maybe that's just my thing. But um, in December 2016, I got an email in my inbox, and it was the Banff Art Centre newsletter that I'd signed up to when I was at art school. And weirdly, I'd just unsubscribed from a bunch of new- newsletters, but I kept that one on. And they were like, oh, we're announced ever singer-songwriter residency. And I thought, finally, I can apply for something at the Band Bart Centre because it's really sort of, like, renowned and uh, considered an amazing place to go as an, art- as an artist. I didn't tell anyone that I'd applied, and I think I'd had a couple of glasses of wine, which probably made me feel I had the confidence to do it. And then, uh, yeah, got told that I'd been accepted, so went away for a two-week residency in March 2017. I was so nervous, like, two days before, I was, like, saying to my friends, can't go, don't know why I thought I could do this, this is not for me, you know, because I struggle to even play, like, unaccompanied on my own solo for stuff. So anyway, off I went, and it just kind of changed my life, and I got mentored, a lot of these Nashville songwriters that are in the Song Hall of Fame or won Grammys and uh, there's one in particular that just became what I call my Shiro who's Kim Ritchie. I just spoke to her about everything I'd done and she said you know you don't need to worry about the way you play the piano, you play the piano the way a songwriter plays their piano, you know you're not you're not a pianist, you're you're a songwriter and I was like okay and Russell DeCarl who's like the coolest guy ever and you just got to sit and write up in the mountains in Canada. There was nothing there. There was 24 of us, and most of them were Canadian. I was the only person from Europe there, and most of them were doing sort of singer-songwriter, kind of folk-influenced stuff. 
So there was like me and one other girl called Lisa Crawley from Melbourne who were kind of like pop writers and she was great as well. She was really good to chat to and kind of get, I guess, peer-to-peer support. But anyway, whilst I was there, you got a three-hour recording session with a guy called Howard Billerman. He was the original drummer in Arcade Fire and put just their album Funeral and I totally wasn't aware this was part of the deal when I went over. So when we first when I first met Howard, it was one day I was up in the, the canteen having my breakfast and he was there on his own with his hoodie up. So I just walked over and was like, Can I sit down here? And he was like, Yeah, and I was like, So I really love recording, like I, I made an album in mono and he was like, What? And then for it turns out we both loved all things must pass and anyway just became friends so when it came to my recording session because I was the last out of the 24 it was meant to be a three-hour session but I thought I'll take a bottle of whiskey and turn it into a five-hour session and that totally worked and we had a great time and this guy called Fats Kaplan who kind of looked like if Tim Burton drew Andy Warhol and he could play any string instrument so he played violin on the two tracks I recorded at the Banfart Centre and he's like toured and played with Beck and Jack White and that was just insane to me because I'm from a small town in Scotland called Carlick which is like an old mining town so to be doing working with these people was pretty cool and when I got back to Scotland Howard just said why don't you come and do an album in Canada and I thought yeah why not so it was good it was a challenge I just spent all summer writing just I moved back in with my mum and put my synth away and just went back to the piano and using basic chords and garage band to demo some stuff up and then I went to Montreal in September last year and had the best 10 days ever in a studio was like I invited some friends that I'd met on the residency to come and join me so yeah there was like seven of us and we had like vintage synths and timpani and choirs and strings and brass and a sitar player and yeah made this album that I think's maybe the album I've kind of always wanted to make where you don't really think about how you do it live you just think about how do I make a really great sounding record you know awesome how many songs did you do we did 12 I think it was quite cool because I started recording them at a studio in Glasgow called La Chunky that I've worked with for years and Colin and Ronan there are just wonderful and very supportive of, of what I do. So we thought, right, we'll start the sessions in Glasgow and Pro Tools and then they can be opened up in Montreal. Because I've got a tendency to be like, well, we'll just put another synth here and we'll just add this other synth track there. So I thought if I do that, I'm not wasting all the musicians' time in Canada. We did like guide vocals, but then some of them ended up being the vocals on the tracks. So for me, it was kind of cool to do. It's, it was really split between Glasgow and Montreal, the album. And I think I totally went off what your question was there. <laughs> no, no, it's good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How many songs did you write in Canada at the Banff Art Centre? The four songs I wrote in that two weeks were Dreamers on the Run, Impossible Stuff, Girl from Before and Lights in the Dark that became the first single from the album. Yeah, tell me tell me about that. It just was one of those things like, I can't really explain how good it was to have two weeks where you don't have anything to do apart from play. Play the piano and, and write and talk about playing and writing with other people and who are doing it. And I mean, I've never written so much in my life as I did last year. So Lights in the Dark sort of came to me 
quite easily and quite often I'll write down notes or phrases and books and then you kind of have these reference points to go through when you you realise you're on a theme and thinking things work but it just became quite an honest account of I guess a relationship kind of breaking down and then holding on to realising that the mundanities that you maybe think of what have contributed to a relationship ending and being in these never-ending cycles that actually end up being the things that you miss the most. And you released that in February? Just at the end of January, yeah. so I think it was the 29th of January, yeah. And you've been doing some gigs to promote it? Yeah, so the, amazingly all the Canadians came over to, to Scotland and we did shows in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Manchester and London and did a six music session for Mark Riley and the BBC Scotland session for Janice Forsyth. So they were here, I think, for two weeks tops, but it felt like the amount of rehearsing and gigging and travelling we'd done, it had been like a month. And it was weird because when I said bye to them on the residency, I was so upset because I didn't know I'd see them again. And then when I said bye to them in Montreal, it was like, oh, I don't know when I'll see you again. But when they left Glasgow this time, it was more a, like, I can't wait to see you again. Like, it just seems, I don't know, it's not very sustainable, a sort of transatlantic band, but <laughs> I, I, I just can't not imagine playing with them again. Like, the response we got was fantastic, and it was so good to play with the people that played on the record as well, because I'll be doing a small tour with the UK in October, but it'll be with musicians I know from Scotland that'll be playing with me. But I don't know, maybe I need to either go to Canada or or maybe when the album comes out, they'll come back over, who knows. So when is the album coming out? Well, I think it'll be the beginning of next year, but mm. it's just kind of getting sorted right now. Um, but it is insane as well, because you think, well, I recorded it in the summer of 2017, it might not come out until 2019. But the thing is, is that for me, it's always the writing and recording the kind of big fun part of the whole process for me so I've already started I think what will be album number three and recorded like four tracks for that in the interim just because uh, that's my favorite part <laughs> nice I read online that the album as a whole has a lot to do with lucid dreaming yeah you talk about that well I think it's just when I got back from Canada and I moved back to my mum's just to like give me more time to write and focus and because she's just in the middle of nowhere like you don't really have any distractions and spent a lot of time kind of reading and kind of thinking and maybe just thinking more introspectively as well but I've also just been always a, a, like obsessed with the idea of lucid dreaming and that kind of blur between reality and and real life and how you can get lost in your head sometimes in these kind of fantasies and when you don't interact with people all the time on a daily basis which I didn't for most of the summer you know that point of when does the imagination stop and you just go back to real life I guess so yeah just the kind of thoughts and dreams of where you could go or what you could do it was just something I was kind of exploring when I was writing it. What were you reading at the time? Weirdly, I'd been reading the letters that Van Gogh wrote to his brother and Alan de Botton's essays on love. And I wrote, read this book called, I think it's Art and Death. I 
kind of hurts by by sort of like all these kind of like looking at the small things in life and then philosophizing them and yeah you know I kind of dip in and out of short stories here and there and I've listened to a lot of records but it's like weirdly last year I decided you know that maybe you've had a favorite or you've had a record that you've not listened to for a long time and then you go back and listen to it especially when you listen to something as an adult so I was listening to all these albums that I'd listened to like as a teenager or growing up or reminded me of childhood. So I was listening to like Ben Queller and the Lemonheads and Spiritualized and George and and Carol King and I don't know. And I guess maybe just being back at the home where I'd grown up, it kind of triggers all these kind of memories and feelings and stuff. So maybe that's come through. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's weird. I had a Lemonheads kick like, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to them for a few days. I loved them as a teenager. What's your favorite Lemonhead song? Mm, I really like Bit Part, you know? Oh. I love Bit Part in your life a lot. I think that's a great song. But also Into Your Arms, it's just a fantastic love song, you know? And it's so simple. I mean, I really love Eamon Dando's solo album, Baby I'm Bored. I just think it's fantastic. And he's probably one of my favorite lyrics as well as like some of his songs when you really analyze it might be only eight lines long but it's just because that's all you need and the hook the hooks on them are so great and his vocals always so brilliant but yeah but no I think bit part in my life and into your arms are probably two of my favorites so what have you been listening to lately lately I've been listening to this French composer called Colleen that I just sort of like happened to discover it's kind of like minimalist synth and I think she's done six, five or six albums and only now started using her vocal. I got the Eros Child album when it came out this year. That's brilliant. And Dan Michelson brought an album called, I think it's called The First Light. He be the singer in a band called The Absentee that I really liked. By the time I was maybe 21, 22. So it's a really lush album, like eight songs, but it's all done with strings and I guess it's quite low-key, but it's one of my favourite albums from last year. Um, I don't know, I just kind of dip in and out. Tell me about working with Belle and Sebastian. How did that come about? I got an email from Stuart Murdoch and it said, Stuart Murdoch is from, and then said, like, do you up for writing? And I was like, is that like spam? (laughs) (laughs) And so I replied and then, yeah, it was cool. We just had a couple of writing sessions together and then, it was really cool, and then when we'd finished the song, he was like, oh, would you want to come down and, and hear the band rehearsing it? And I was like, yeah, cool. He was like, right, cool, just while we're learning it, like, if you could just sing it, you know, so there's something to play on to, because I'll play the piano. I was like, right. And then it was like, they played it twice, and Stuart was like, so what do you think? Doing it sounds good in my head. I was like, yeah, it sounds, like, fucking amazing. It sounds like a Bell and Sebastian song. So, yeah, it was really cool, and Stuart was really nice to, to work with. Yeah, and then they asked if I wanted to sing it, and I was like, well, that's pretty cool, so they record it, and um, yeah, the response has kind of blown me away, everyone's been so nice about it. And you have a single coming up, another single coming up in April. Yeah, well, there's kind of, it's kind of like two parts of the single, so there'll be very, very limited edition vinyl available on Record Store Day, which is the 21st of April, and then there'll be like a sort of worldwide digital release on the 5th of May alongside some more limited edition CDs. But I'm quite excited about it because the single's uh, called Wanting What I Can't Have. It's kind of gone for that for the 
release option I'm doing because the the vinyl's only going to be ten copies made of a seven inch, and each seven inch has a different picture on it, which is some portraits that uh, this photographer Brian Sweeney shot. He's just the coolest guy ever. And then the CD single, I was like, oh, I remember when you used to buy CD singles and they'd have loads of remixes on them as well as the main single. And like how one of my favourite ever songs is the Ted Farley remix of Come Together by Primal Scream, which you can't find online anywhere, but it's so good. There's like a big gospel choir. And this song's probably very much influenced by that remix anyway. So for the CD single and digital release, I've asked some friends to remix the song. So it'll be like a CD with my version and there's like, I think, five other versions from different people just to kind of go back to that old 90s way of of CD singles. So hopefully people don't think I've lost the plot and they're like, why are you only doing 10 vinyl and why is everyone different and, and all that? But I'm really excited to do it and it's also exciting because... It's a co-release with the labels Olive Grove Records and Last Night from Glasgow. So it's nice just to kind of work all together because Olive Grove put out the Homemade Lemonade album and then Last Night from Glasgow put out the Teen Canteen album. So it's quite nice to, to bring everyone together and to have friends remix your song and kind of do it in this fun, conceptual way. But I think that's the old art student in me thinking about how to release it rather than just like you should probably just make your music available to more people than <laughs> as many people as possible <laughs> nice i i missed that in the 90s there was like so many extra tracks to hunt down yeah CD totally <laughs> and like you know some of the remixes would be awful of course but some of them would be great and um you know i remember like going to the shop with my mom and she'd be like you can have one C- single and you'd be standing with about three like oh, I don't know what one to get so I'd always pick the one that had like the most tracks on it or like a, a DVD with it or something that would never play on anything because DVDs were still new at the time and I don't know maybe the single afterwards I'll attempt like a mini disc release or something just to really kind of amp up the kind of retro vibes I mean I've still got loads of CD singles because I just can't I can't throw them away you know and um my friend recently is he just bought this really old car and it's still got a cassette deck in it <laughs> and uh so he's got all these albums and cassettes and the best thing is is in like secondhand stores you can you can get them so cheap now so uh yesterday we were going out for like a drive and a coffee and he was like oh take two pounds and go and buy two albums and cassette in this charity shop so I walked out and I got uh, well, I got Stone Love by the Supremes for 99 pence on cassette. And there was a cassette that had two Super Tramp albums on it in one, which was just great two albums to listen to on a Saturday afternoon in the car. Awesome. <laughs> so yeah. Gr- and so cheap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so girl groups, obviously, you're a big fan. Who, mm-hmm. who are some of your favorites? I really love a girl group called The Cookies. That um, Carol King and Jerry Goffin wrote pretty much all their songs for. They're great. I remember the first time I heard Earl Jean McRae sing. So she's like the lead vocalist in the group, and it was like an iron fist in a velvet glove coming out of the speaker. You know, it was kind of sounded like really sassy because she's like, "Don't say nothing bad about my baby, girl. You better shut your mouth." And I was like, "Wow, that's not like any girl group I've heard before." So they're my favourite. And then I love the Honeycone, who 
the lead singer is uh, Darlene Love's kid sister, but they're not really part of the girl group era because they were like 72, 73, and it was... Um, Holland Dizzy or Holland right and all their songs but after they'd left Motown so they still got these kind of Motown grooves but it's total 70s and the harmonies are brilliant they're just such a cool band and then there's this one called The Fuzz who I think they were 1975 three or five and it's three girls and the lead singer Sheila Young wrote all the songs and it's considered like the first time spoken word was put on an album so some people say it's the first example of kind of rap and it's this weird concept album of a relationship being like the four seasons i'd love to get that on vinyl it's just the fuzz by the fuzz and that's probably to find on vinyl but it's just the arrangement on that so lush um so 70s but a real groove to it the honeycomb like their lyrics are so good while you're oh, out looking really, for sugar. Oh, yeah. My favourite is uh, The Day I Find Myself, though. Like, see the extended version of that where it's the whole intro and stuff. And I remember, like, I put it on a cassette tape for my mum so she could listen to it in her car. And she was just like, Carl, I feel like this song's like the story of my life. And I was like, yeah. And then I remember letting like, my friend Ryan here as a DJ and he was just like, what is with the brass arrangement on that? It's incredible just how it builds, but I just think that's a fantastic band. I think if you like the Honeycomb, you really like the fuzz. Like They're a lot more kind of like laid back and chilled out, but um, they've got a song called I Love You For All Seasons, which is just insanely good. So good. Uh, actually, I found that on 7-inch in a record shop in Montreal because I went in with my friend Brett Howard told me to go he was like right if you like if you like records go to the shop and I was like right and there was like a girl group section like huge uh of seven inches and I was flying through it you know and I was like no fucking way and Brett was like Carla shut up like what has happened now it's like I've got the first seven inch I've been wanting this for ages and the guy at the desk was just like, what the fuck is going on? Anyway, I took like $100 worth of seven inches up to the desk and then just started chatting to him. And he's like, you know what, you can just have them for 60 And I was like, oh my God, you're great. So, and then uh, I just, I had to leave because I could have kept going, to be honest. Awesome. And then, I mean, I love the Ronettes, but that's just a combination of like, Ronnie Spector's voice was Phil Spector's production and I actually saw Ronnie Spector in 2009 at the Arches in Glasgow and that was insane because I never thought I'd see her in my life because it's not really from my kind of generation I guess and uh, you know she was so frail when she walked on stage but she still had this like massive black hair and bright red lips and then she opened her mouth and you're like oh there's Ronnie Spector and uh, she started singing I Wish I Never Saw the Sunshine which is my favourite Renette song and me and my brother kind of ran to the front and I was singing along everywhere and she pointed at me and I was like my god Ronnie Spector knows who I am um, but she doesn't but it was just amazing to hear her voice you know I mean she seemed quite frail but still packing a punch with the pipes I don't know why I like girl groups I just think they're quite fascinating as a genre of music yeah, I got this great uh, compilation years and years ago that I found, uh, which I'd love this CD box set. I don't think I ever got a vinyl release called One Kiss Can Lead to Another. 
and it's like girl group rarities. I don't know if you've ever come across no, that. No, I have but... it in the hat box. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I, I love that. And um, But there's a track on it by a band called Cinderella. But I think Cinderella was just the Blossoms under another name. <laughs> and it's just such a good song. Um, I just love it when you stack harmonies together. I think that's what I like about them because you kind of use you're using the voice as an instrument that way, and like thinking about how you can build it and singing harmonies live is so cool. Like, see when you just are so in with each other and you do this weird portamento that's not been rehearsed. I think it's the best feeling in the world ever. Like, you just feel like, oh, I really belong, or I'm really part of this kind of like unit. And we're making this sound and it's just really cool. I think that's what I like about it. I also think that without girl groups, we probably wouldn't have had music as we know it. Because, like, if you think about it, they came onto the scene in, like, 19... Well, 1958 is, like, the first number one girl single, girl group single. And it's the question, will you still love me tomorrow? And, like, prior to that, teenage girls were just like, oh, I'll go to school, then I'll maybe get my secretarial job, and then I'll get married and have kids. So you didn't really have the teenage girl. be had the teenage boy because of, like, Elvis and all that. So all of a sudden it was like the teenage girl had a voice and you could ask questions and express their wants and desires. And I think that was a big part of the success of the girl group. I think it's fascinating that a lot of them are black girl groups selling to sort of, like, white middle class teenagers as well like that's insane because it's pre-civil rights movement and then all of a sudden this band who cover girl group songs from Liverpool then answer the questions because they're like no I want to hold your hand and please please me and all that so then all the girl group fans become Beatlemania because all of a sudden there's these boys saying we do love you and we want to hang around with you and I think Everyone always talks about punk being this seminal period, but to me, it's uh, fifty-eight to sixty-three. Awesome, <laughs> that's a great theory. I think about these things too long. <laughs> and you've used the phrase "new wall of sound" to describe what you want to do. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was like uh, when we were working with Stephen Watkins uh, on the Team Cantina album, and. It took me a while to find a producer that I thought could do what we wanted to do. And I was like, you know, I want to reference girl group sounds from before in these records that I love, but I, want, I don't want it to sound like a retro record because, you know, people kept calling us a retro band and stuff like that. And that kind of well, it made me a bit angry because I was like, why are we a retro band? Because we just use, cause we use drums, guitar, bass and, and a synth. Is that not just the standard setup of a group? How is that retro? But then I was like, yeah, you know, there's going to be a lot of synths on the on the album and stuff. And then Stephen was like, right, well, we'll record it in mono rather than stereo. And I was like, perfect. That's enough to kind of reference those old groups. I did not know how hard it would be to record in mono rather than stereo. We nearly fell out countless times. It's very mathematical, but it probably made us better musicians as a result of it because uh, you're very aware of what you're doing and not stepping on other people's toes to let parts kind of slot together rather than it just making mud. And then Stephen was like, yeah, this is cool. It's like a new wall of sound that we're doing. And I was like, oh, I like that phrase. <laughs> and I just kept using it. And then... Um, 
But I think that's it. It's like you want to kind of reference the stuff that you love and what I love about records is that kind of big sound, big production and kind of strings, but you don't you don't want to replicate it. You you can't replicate it. You just kinda of want to say, Yeah, that's that's what I love. Maybe you hear the influence and maybe you don't, so yeah, I don't know if it is a new wall of sound or not, but I'm happy to try. I really like how you use the hashtag pop forever. I've signed my emails off yeah. that way for years. Like, when did that come to you? I don't know. It's just, um, I think it was like I read an interview with Kylie Minogue once and she was like, pop is not a dirty word. And I was like, oh my God, that is so right. You know, because like futuristic champions were a very pop band and kind of like I think all our BPMs were like 200 or something stupid like that and it was stupid lyrics I was writing because I didn't really know what I was doing and I was like mm, I guess you can hide behind humour sometimes but I just thought pop isn't a dirty word and yeah and then I just thought pop forever just go with that so my final question is always say you had stolen a space shuttle and were flying it directly into the sun for whatever reason you had to be doing this what would you want to be listening to? To fly directly into the sun. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, if I'm going in a sort of like happy, like, wow, I'm I'm flying directly into the sun, I'd probably like to listen to something really upbeat. I mean, one of my favorite ever like pure pop records is probably Better the Devil You Know by Kylie. And I think that'd be pretty cool, like flying into the sun. But I guess more fitting would be Hey, It's the Sun by Polyphonic Spree. Or maybe you could go Burn Baby Burn by Ash if you're going thematically. That'd be pretty good. What would you listen to? I will answer that question in due time, listeners. But now I'd like to play you a snippet of Carla's upcoming single, Wanting What I Can't Have. That was Carla J. Easton's Wanting What I Can't Have, which will be available in very limited editions on Record Store Day and then digitally on May 4th. 
There was also a futuristic retro champion song called May the 4th, so check that out. Carla's website is carlajenniferesten.com, and she's playing in Glasgow on April 4th and Edinburgh on April 11th, and there'll be more dates to come. I really hope one of my trips to the UK coincides with her playing live. Do visit thecounterforce.net. There's lots of show notes, and you can sign up to the mailing list to get my weekly email of seven songs that I'm currently digging. And be sure to have a listen to Teen Canteen's pop masterpiece, Say It All With a Kiss. I'm going to leave you here with their honey. He is fun. Cause he's good.